If you got your Bibles, grab them and let's go to work. We will be in the book of Colossians, chapter 1. As we continue our Advent series, uh, my name is Dustin, by the way. It's not important, but uh, I'm not normally the guy that's up here. Uh, Kyle did not suddenly become very good looking, okay? <clears throat> Just want to make sure you know the difference. <laughs> <clears throat> So it's my privilege to be with you and to share the word with you this morning. The Christmas season is sometimes kind of interesting. Uh, I think half the time we get so focused on our own personal lives and the way Christmas is for us and whatever our situation is, either as a child or as a parent, maybe, or as a grandparent. There's, there's great Christmas things to do no matter what stage of life that we're in. But we focus so much on the here and now. And I think at times we begin to think of Christmas as maybe the first Christmas came as a surprise. Uh, but that's just simply not true, right? So if you remember, and let's place things in proper context here. But the Bible starts with two chapters of perfect history. It's because man's not there, right? God creates and it's good, right? <clears throat> that's chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis. Chapter 3, we show up, and we're on the scene about 45 minutes before we blow everything up, okay? We sin. It takes about 14 verses for the Bible to, describes, to describe what that temptation and fall looks like, but it's 14 verses, and it describes everything, how all the pain and misery and suffering and death and sin in the world came because of us. We did it. We blew it. And the very first time that good news could ever enter the world is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And the very first time that good news enters the world is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's incredible how the God of the universe comes as a missionary to a lost and dying world, and he proclaims the good news, that there is one that is coming who will be a Messiah, and he is a serpent-crushing Messiah. And he is on the way. Now, this is the very first time that man ever heard about anything such as grace, anything such as mercy. There was no need for us to even know that type of word because there's no grace needed if we're sinless, if we're perfect. There's no, no mercy was required. <clears throat> but when Christ or when God comes and he declares this incredible plan that he's sending one who will fix it all, Adam and Eve heard about mercy and grace for the first time. And so they realized, <clears throat> excuse me, that their misery was going to have a remedy. And so watch this, because we've got to grasp that our faith is a historical faith, that we have generations and generations and centuries and whatever you call thousands of years that come behind us of faithful people who trusted what the Lord said. 
Adam and Eve trusted what the Lord said. They heard this story that there is a Messiah coming. Did he come in their lifetime? No. Were they told that he would come or not come in their lifetime? No. They were just told he's on the way. And so Adam and Eve, they begin to teach this to their children. Hey, Seth, listen. God has promised that one is on his way. We don't know really what he'll look like. We're not sure what all that's going to mean, but we know he's on the way. And then Seth watched as his parents died. They died believing that what God said was going to was going to come to place, come come to pass. They knew that this was on the way, but Seth watched it, and Seth taught his children, and his children watched Seth die for centuries, for thousands of years, generations and generations of people who trusted the Lord. I think sometimes we greatly underestimate how much of the Christian life is simply trusting that God will do what he says. So many times we want to do the practical stuff. Tell me about what I need to do. Tell me about the things I don't need to do. And quite honestly, what we need to do about 90% of the time is just trust that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. There was this great anticipation for thousands of years. Can you imagine the difficulty and the challenge of waiting the thousands of years, the angst of waiting the thousands of years, the generations and generations? Surely somebody at some point had to go, are we positive this is what he said? I love Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 13 of that chapter, as it's talking through all the great people of faith, there the writer of Hebrews says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I, I love to think through all the Old Testament saints who greeted the coming of Christ from afar. They acknowledged that he was on the way, and they acknowledged that it's going to take place. It's as sure as the dawn. And that faith caused them to follow. That faith caused them to obey and to do crazy things. Like think about the crazy things that they did because they believed the Messiah was coming. Like... All right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to march around the building seven times and then blow our horns. Does this make sense to anybody? Absolutely not. But God has said he's going to do something. And we believe what he says. Okay, let's do it. Right? And then you blow the trumpets and everything. This giant fortified city just crumbles at your feet. Okay, so when he said he's going to give us the land, I think he means he's going to give us the land. He does that. And the faith of all the Old Testament saints has been incredible as they looked forward to the coming of the Christ. They looked forward to something that they trusted was sure. 
Now, this one that's coming, what's he like? Is he really trustworthy? What if he shows up and he can do what he says he can do? This is going to be a problem. What if he shows up and we find out that he wasn't quite worth the Egyptian slavery? What if he wasn't worth the bloody conquest? Of, <laughs> I'm not British, okay? <laughs> it wasn't worth the conquest of the land, bloody conquest. <clears throat> Was he going to be worth all the really bad kings and the divided kingdom and the exile, all these things? Is he going to be worth, is he going to worth the 400 years of silence? I mean, at some point, I feel like my faith would be a little shaky. But the one that's coming is promised to make it all worth it. So our text today, uh, Kyle gave me. Er. Hal gives me the text that there's more heresies that have come out through the history of the church from this text than any other text in all the Bible. This is one of the four great Christological tests, uh, texts in the Scriptures, in the New Testament Scriptures. If you want to study Christology, you need to know this passage. Also put down John chapter 1, verses 1-18. through 18. Beautiful text that teaches us what we need to believe about Christ. Also put down Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And then the fourth one would be Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. These texts are what teach us who this Messiah is and what he's come to accomplish. Okay? So this text is really important. Now last week, uh, Kyle got to mention um, one of the heresies that is, surrounds Christ. Almost all the heresies the things where, where Satan comes and tries to pervert the truth, tries to deceive people away from the truth uh, of God, they, he does it around the person and work of Christ. And so Kyle last week mentioned um, St. Nicholas punching a guy named Arius because Arius had a heresy. He taught that Christ was not God. He taught that Christ was created, right? And St. Nick said, no, nope. Right? He slapped him in the name of Jesus because he needed it. Right? It's great historical truth. If you think through most of the heresies that we see today, they are all based often on the Arianism debate. Many in the Jehovah's Witnesses will, will teach that Christ is a created being. It's not true. Mormons teach that Christ is a created being, okay? And the only problem with this idea is what? The Bible, thank you, okay? Some of you didn't know that was coming, but be ready. The Bible is the problem with that idea. The Bible does not teach that. A second heresy that really is based some out of uh, a misinterpretation of this text is a heresy by uh, a a man that lived a couple of centuries after Christ, whose name was Origen. And Origen had this idea that uh, he said Christ was God, but he was a second-tier God. He said that Christ had some attributes of deity, but he didn't have all that God the Father had. Additionally, Origen was a universalist. And a universalist is someone who believes that ultimately, at the very end, all people, every single person will be saved. 
And again, the only problem with that is the Bible. If you think about these types of things, about what we believe about Christ, it, it is just as important today as it was in the early centuries when the church was nailing down these doctrines to make sure that we taught the truth and we prevented other people from going into the errors of saying that Christ was a created being or that Christ was just an angel or that Christ uh, was a second-tier God. You see, people in our world today are oftentimes really willing to accept the Christ in the manger as long as he is not the God-man. They like to celebrate all the things of Christmas. They're celebrate, S-E-L-L, celebration, right, of Christmas. Some of you are like, what was third grade spelling again? You'll, you'll get there. <clears throat> the celebrations of Christmas, they're happy to that. They, they see all the things that we do around Christmas time, and they're satisfied. They look at them as, the, as if they're harmless. But when they view that the baby in the manger is not just a baby, but he is the God-man, God became flesh, then that changes everything. You see, the Bible teaches that the child that was born was be, should have been called Emmanuel, which means God with us, God born in human flesh. Isaiah chapter 9 promises that this son that would be given, this child that would be born, that the governments would be upon his shoulders. They said <clears throat> other things. They In that text, it calls him the mighty God, gives him all these designations of deity. All are assigned to the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1 verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is the one that was made flesh? None other than the fullness of God. It's impossible. I, I don't expect any of us to be able to leave here grasping the totality of what it means that God became man because it's impossible. Because the scripture simply says, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. Just meditate on the riches of Christ before the manger, and you'll have plenty to do for the rest of your life. Is this one that came worthy of putting your faith in? My hope for this Christmas sermon is that we just get to see again who Christ is. For most of us, I believe this will probably just be a review, and that's okay. For some of us, it might be an introduction, but either way, I trust it will be a blessing. So if you got your Bibles, let's stand and let's read our text for this morning. Now, really, to grasp everything, we should start at verse 3, but for the sake of hoping somebody leaves here still liking me, I'm going to go ahead and just start at verse 15, okay? Okay. Colossians chapter 1, start in verse 15. The scripture says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is truth. God, we acknowledge that where our beliefs and our convictions do not line up with your word, our beliefs and convictions are wrong. So, Father, today I pray that you help us us submit ourselves to the truth, to embrace the truth. And, And to do that, Lord, we recognize we must reject all other things that we hold as truth. We don't want to add something to what we already believe and try to mix it up to give it a little bit more true than it was before. But, Lord, we would rather reject all falsehoods to cling to your word today. Father, make these things that may seem difficult very clear to us. And I pray, God, that you would grant us as your people confidence in the Christ that you sent. For this I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if I was as good as Kyle, I would have said something like, this is the word of the Lord, and you would have said something like, yep, we'll do that next time. So when I read this text, the word that kept coming to my mind was that this text outlines the credentials of Christ. Credentials is this word that that just means uh, this is the reasons that he is trustworthy. These are the things he brings to the table. This is uh, him saying he's got the PhDs that you should trust. He's done the work that you you should trust. He has the characteristics and the qualities and the attributes that you should trust. And the first credential I want you to see is that he is deity. Okay, This text teaches that Jesus Christ is God. Now, get this. The credentials of Christ will confer confidence in Christians. I did that on purpose because I'm a preacher and I can't help it. But if you look at what I just said, the credentials of Christ will give us confidence in the one in whom we put our faith. What this text teaches us about Christ is a declaration that he is worthy of your trust. He is the one to whom you should look for your salvation because there is none other. Okay? So Paul here starts 
uh, as Paul wrote the book of Colossians. And so Paul starts by saying, he is the invisible God. He is the invisible God. Now, this he is referring back to verse 13, where verse 13 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. When it says he in verse 15, it's talking about the son in verse 13. Verse 14 goes on to say, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so he, the son, is the image of the invisible God. So it doesn't take very much study of the Bible to realize that God is invisible, right? The Old Testament tells us that no man has seen God. God says, you cannot look upon me and live. In John chapter 1, the text says that nobody has ever seen God. Paul says in 1 Timothy, when he writes about God, he calls him strictly the invisible God. John chapter 4 tells us that God is spirit and that they must worship him in spirit and in truth. So God is invisible. The crazy thing about this is this teaches us that Jesus makes the invisible God visible. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, No man has seen God at any times at any time, but he, the word, he hath declared him. Literally, he's just revealed him. He has shown us exactly who he is. This idea here of this image, the, the word in the Greek is actually icon, but it it's not necessarily what we would call an icon. Okay? Um, but this has the idea of exact replica or a precise copy or a representation. He is the image. Now, be careful here. Some people will think that that means that Jesus was created in the image of God. No, no, no. When Genesis talks about being created in the image of God, Genesis is talking about man. He's talking about us. We're created in the image of God. Being created in the image of God and being God's image are two totally different things. Okay? He is God's image. Big difference. He is the replica, the copy of God, the exact reproduction. If I was to try to come up with a word that would maybe make sense, I'd think of maybe photograph or something like that. You've not seen him, but now you've seen him. God is invisible, but Christ has made him manifest. Now, one of the other Christological passages I mentioned earlier was Hebrews chapter 1. And Hebrews chapter 1 says this, that Jesus, being the brightness of his glory, the glory of the Father, and the express image of his person. It's this word, as we've seen it seen, said now more multiple times in the text, we begin to realize what it means that Christ has come to reveal God. He is the radiance of God. His brightness, the brightness of his glory would be like the sun. If you think about the sun, the sun shines its light. Its radiance goes out from the sun, and then it lights and warms and gives life to the world, right? And that's what Christ does. The radiance of God, Christ brings all the way from some cosmic location, but he brings it to the very hearts of men. Now, if you think about it too, try to think of the sun without its brightness. You'd be like, ow, right? 
that doesn't work. There's never been a time that the sun didn't have that there was a sun that the sun didn't have its brightness. Same way. There's never been a time that God did not have the radiance of his glory shining through Christ. Christ is eternal because God is eternal. Now, some people would look at this and say, well, maybe he's not as good of a copy as you're saying, Dustin. Maybe he's just some, you know, it'd be like if, if a first grader kind of tried to make a sketch of God. Maybe it looks more like that. And the only problem with that is the Bible. Verse 19 says this, For in him all the first grade portrait of God was pleased to dwell. Thank you. Okay. Everybody else shut their Bibles and like, oh, we're still in it. Yes, we're going to be in it the whole time. Are you new? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's not a sketch. Okay? This is not, maybe Jesus just gives us the general idea of what God is. No, in him the fullness of God dwelled. He's not an outline of God. He's not a sketch of God. He is all of God. He's the fullness of God. He's not a summary of deity. Jesus Christ is deity. And so if Christ has said to all those Old Testament saints, there's one coming. Now that these brothers and sisters, if you think about the crazy things as they switch you, you see this in Simeon and Anna and, and some of those in, that were elderly when the Messiah came and they said, my eyes actually get to see it, right? And they all shared the same thing and it's right and good and worthy of our trust. Why? Because he's God. Now this next uh, little phrase causes no pro- nobody any problems whatsoever. It says he's the firstborn of all creation. Okay, that's a lie. <laughs> With this text, so many times people confuse this and they say, well, then what's happening is he was born first amongst all of creation. And so Jesus was actually a created being. And the problem with that's the Bible. It just doesn't, it's just not the way it works. Okay, let me give you something. This is something called basic hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how to in properly interpret the Bible. Okay, There's a great uh, statement of faith called the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second London Baptist was actually written in 1689. That's why it gets that, that, uh, those numbers there. It says this, in chapter 1 on the Holy Scriptures, paragraph 9, it reads this, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one. Now watch me, okay? What we understand is the text has one meaning. It may have lots of applications, but it has one meaning. It can't mean something to you and something to you and something to me and something else altogether to God. No, whatever God said, he meant something, and our job is to figure out what he meant. Right? So, like if my wife says to one of the boys, because Anna Grace would never do this, she's an angel, but said to one of the boys, clean your room. 
and you go in and they've just taken everything from the floor and crammed it in the closet. Right? And you go in and you're like, what is this? You said clean the room. You did not say clean the closet. That doesn't fly. Why? Because she doesn't have to explain all that. It's clear by what she said, by what she meant. She meant clean everything. As soon as you go into that, you cross the threshold of that door, everything on the inside of that better be clean. Right? Am I the only one that has children in here? Y'all look at me like I'm crazy. That happens, I hear, every now and then in other people's homes too. So what we have to do is tricky because this was written by Paul in the first century in Asia, right? And so we have to go back 2,000 years to a new language and to a new culture and to figure out what he means, right? So the best way when you're interpreting Scripture is to look at close context. Most of the time, 99% of the time, an, an study of the close context of the text, it's almost always all that you need, okay? Now, let's read what happens just after this. The firstborn of all creation, verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Well, that kind of throws a monkey wrench in the idea that he was created, wasn't it? That it would be like me saying this. Dustin is a bachelor. He's married to Candy. Right? You're like, you, both things can't be true. Am I right? You. We need more coffee stat. They can't both be true. Dustin can't be a bachelor and be married at the same time. You would either say he's either not married to Candy or he doesn't know what the word bachelor means. Right? And that's the case in this. We see the word firstborn and we don't really know what the word firstborn means. And the our first clue is the next verse when it says, all things were created by him. And then we go, well, that, that must not mean what we thought it mean, right? And nobody confu get confused about that idea that I'm a bachelor because Candy throws hands like a felon. You don't want to go down that road, okay? <laughs> so this idea in their culture, in their firstborn, if you think back to the Jewish traditions, you remember what the firstborn gets. He is the one that inherits all things, right? It, he is the heir. It's his. He holds the rank and the authority in the family, and he will be the one to continue the family business. Even in the situations when it's not the firstborn. Remember Jacob and Esau? Who was the oldest? Esau. We don't even say his name first, right? We've never, nobody in this room has ever said Esau and Jacob. It kind of stings coming out. Doesn't it? That doesn't right. Why is it not right? Because God said it doesn't matter who was born first. The firstborn is Jacob. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. God gave to Jacob the right of the firstborn. He is the one that was going to be the heir of all things. If you want more proof of this, look at Psalm chapter 89. 
Psalms don't have chapters, okay? The 89th Psalm, verse 27. God speaking here says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. God there is talking about David, also has an application to Christ, okay? But here he says of David, I'm going to make you the supreme, the ranking king of the earth. I'm going to continue to bless my people Israel, and all these kings are going to try to come at you, but they're not going to be able to take you. I'm going to make you the supreme king of all the earth. When um, the the fulfillment of this, of course, in Christ is he's the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He's the supreme one. He is the one that has the name that is above every name. And so make no mistake, he's not a creature. He's the creator. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 1 says, God has spoken to us through his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Christ is the one who is the firstborn of all creation. He is the right, he has the right to inherit all creation. Okay? I hope that makes sense. John chapter 1, verse 3, just to say it a little bit more. Just to, if the, if the close context doesn't work, then you can go to the other parts of Scripture. And John chapter 1, verse 3 says, Without him was not anything made that was made. So you, there might be people that say, Well, God created Jesus, and then Jesus took over from there. And you just gently and lovingly say, Well, there's just one problem with that. This should be what's going on in your head and in your heart. I know I say it kind of as a joke, but there's always going to be times when the deceiver will come in and try to say, don't you really doubt that this is true? And you simply say to your heart, well, heart, the only problem with that false idea is the Bible. Because we don't want to come up with trust in our hearts for anything the world has to offer because the world has been proven wrong repeatedly. And the scripture has never been proven wrong. Though Satan has thrown his fiery darts at it since the Garden of Eden. And yet every time he convinces a person that God's word is false, it is quickly revealed that Satan was yet again wrong. And God was yet again found true. And so, tell your heart. Tell your heart often. (laughs) Without him was not anything made that was made. He made everything. All things were created by him. This I just want to acknowledge, okay? So, if we're going to put our trust in somebody, I would be plenty happy. If he could just make like Arkansas, I would be so impressed. I'd be like, that's plenty. You don't have to do anything else. It's beautiful. There's trees, there's grass, there's white-tailed deer. There's all these incredible things, right? But just think for a second, right? Uh, So yesterday we went to Shreveport. Is that where we went, Kyle? Shreveport, okay, which is somewhere not here, right? So we had to go on this little drive. Well, imagine going for a drive 
from here to the end of Shreveport, and that would be here to the end of the universe, okay? So watch here. If you were to leave your house and go to Mercury, it's 50 million miles away. Jupiter is 367 million miles away. If you're going the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, you can leave your house and make it to Jupiter in about 35 minutes. Okay? If you decide you're going to go a little bit farther, you're making good time anyway, right? So you keep going and you want to go all the way to Saturn. It's 790 million miles away and it takes an hour and 11 seconds. Neptune, three b with a B, okay, billion miles away. Keep going. The next nearest star is 20 billion miles away. The North Star is 400 billion miles away. A great big giant star is called Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is 880 quadrillion miles miles away. That's as far as I'm going because I don't know what comes after a quadrillion. I had to stop. Okay. Here's my point. When you make it all the way from your house on the way to Shreveport to the end of the universe, and you make it all the way to Beetlejuice, you're still on your front porch. You realize that? You've not made it to the car yet. This is the one that created all things, that takes the vast expanse of the universe, and the scripture says he holds it right here in the span of his hand. He created all things, and in him all things consist. They, they are held together by him. You, so if you can just grasp that, then maybe you can trust when he says he can create you again that he can do it. Is he the one that can make a lost person, a dead person alive again? Yeah, that's, that's no problem. Not to this one. Not to the one that we've been promised. This is why Adam and Eve are happy, happy to be recipients of that news of great mercy and say we will teach our kids and we'll teach our kids to teach their kids and their grandkids for generations and thousands of years it's fine why because the one who's coming is worthy who made all that well that's the babe and the major did <laughs> Woo! you should be far more excited than you are All things in him hold together. The whole world would fall apart if it weren't for him. God upholds the word. Hebrews chapter 1. Again, this, these are the Christological passages. You've got to know. It says Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. What keeps the world from flying to pieces? Jesus. He holds it all together. Now, this is just, we're just talking about the arena of the Godhead. That's as far as we've got so far in the book of Colossians. But there's another arena here that Paul is fixing to start talking about, that this one that's come 
is worth your faith, worth you putting your faith in him. And he starts talking about an arena of redemption. And he says, when it comes to redemption, there's no one like Jesus. When it comes to redemption, Jesus Christ is supreme. There's nobody else in the redemption arena at all. Nobody can bring redemption to you. There's none greater than Jesus Christ. There's no greater angel, which is something that the Colossians might have believed that there might have been something that's greater than him. That's a Gnostics heresy that I'm going to let Kyle teach you later. Uh, I don't want to right now. And, and they actually began to think and teach that there might be another way to find redemption. And the point of this is there's no other way. There's no other redemption. It's just Christ. And here in this pregnant little paragraph, Paul says four things I want you to see. One, he says, he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. So one thing I want to encourage you is never ever think of your elders as the head of the church. Because they're not. They're under shepherds serving the head. They we serve at the privilege. Right? It's a privilege to serve. And, and so uh, these elders that serve the Lord and that serve your church so well, they are not the ones that get to decide the mission of the church, what happens in the church. They're not the ones that give life to the church. Right? None of those things happen. The head does that. The head is the one that provides the growth and direction. In uh, Ephesians Paul says, you were created in Christ Jesus. He is the one that makes new creatures. As the head, as the one that is providing the growth, the life that is needed for the body to function, and he's the one that is guiding and giving direction to the church through his word. He then goes on to say that he is the beginning. Okay, He's the head of the body of the church, verse 18. He is the beginning. Arche is the Greek word here. This means several things, and I'm not sure which one's the one, uh, or maybe it's all of these. I don't know, but I want to give you some ideas. This idea of Arche comes with the idea that he is the source, the beginning. All this stuff that is happening in the church, it is sourced from the power of Christ. He is the one who gives life to his church. He is the one that brings the church into existence. We are doing a commissioning service. Disciple of Nations is doing a, dis a commissioning service for one of our missionaries uh, today in St. Louis as that church is commissioning them to be launched out to a place where there's not one single Christian. There's no church. And, you know, we pray that through our efforts, a new church will be planted there, but we recognize who will be the one that will bring the the church into existence. Christ. If Christ does not go with us, we go in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain to build it. Okay? He is the source. He's the one that gives life. It also has this connotation that he is supreme. He is highest in rank. And this makes perfect sense in the text because Paul is going to say over and over and over again, he is the highest in rank. This should matter to you. 
He is the supreme one. He's not only the one that gives life, he's not only the one that directs, but he's also the one that deserves the glory and the honor. Paul then goes on to say he is the firstborn from the dead. Same word in the Greek, same exact word as verse 15. Okay, firstborn of all creation. This time it is firstborn from the dead. He is the highest ranking one. He is the one in authority. And he gained <coughs> this rank of firstborn from the dead by his resurrection. It is his resurrection that shows Christ, God became man, man, God humbled himself, and through this resurrection, God showed that he was well pleased with Christ's sacrifice, and God exalted him to have a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Why? Because he is the firstborn. He's the highest ranking one. He is preeminent. Preeminent means there's no one else in his category. He should have preeminence. There's only one Christ. He's unique. He's incomparable. He's matchless. Buddha, Muhammad, nobody else, not any religious leader whatsoever, anyone who has ever lived, no one else deserves to be spoken of in the same breath as Jesus Christ. He is the preeminent one. There's none like him. Does these credentials of Christ give you confidence? I hope it does. And the question we have next is, why? <laughs> why? Why? Why would you do this? Why would God become man? Why would he be born in a manger? Why would he allow mankind to treat him the way that they treated him? Why would he go and endure the cross? Why would he do that? Well, again, let's look at close context. Surrounding this text, there's, there's uh, a passage of Scripture on both sides here I want you to see. Look, at, look first at verse 13 and 14. I've read this a little bit earlier, but I'm afraid you missed it. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why do we celebrate this God-man come to earth? Why did centuries of believers in the Old Testament look forward to the coming Messiah? Because it was through him that they were promised peace. Now, peace with who, first and foremost? Peace with God. Now, if you, if you study the New Testament, lots of times the New Testament stuff, it's really a little confusing because it's difficult for us to understand what's going on in the minds of the Israelites at that time. And the Israelites, if you think about their history, the Israelites stayed under oppression constantly. They caught, you know, Egyptian slavery, 
right? And then they had all these ites because the Canaanites were, they were just a pain, right? They pestered, pestered them constantly. Philistines, they didn't, you know, they weren't that much fun to hang around with, right? And it was this over and over. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, exile, captivity, Greeks, Romans, it was just not getting better. And so when the Israelites saw Christ come and they recognized that this one is claiming to be the Messiah, he's claiming to be God, they were talking all the time about, well, when are you going to do something about our, all of our oppressors? We got lots of big problems over here and you're not doing anything about it. And Christ's whole point, if you want to understand the New Testament Gospels, here's something that will help you. So many times the Jewish leaders are going, help us with our oppressors. And Jesus goes, I am. But you're worried about the wrong enemy. Romans are no problem. Greeks are no problem. What are you going to do about your enemy, God? That's the problem you've got. You and your rebellious state, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when you rebelled against God most high. You've made yourself an enemy and he has every right to slaughter you. But Christ came to be slaughtered in our place. Making peace. So incredible. You see, a war has been raging between man and God. And God's people, all the way starting back at Adam and Eve, trusted that the wrath of God was going to be poured out on a Messiah. The wrath that they had rightly earned and definitely deserved. But this wrath was going to be poured out upon this one that was going to come. And in the midst of this, he was going to absorb the wrath, make atonement for all of our sins, and through that process, crush the head of the snake. Only this Jesus could take the hand of sinful man and the hand of God and join the two in reconciliation, bringing them back to friendship. Only Jesus could do that. Why did Christ come to make peace between God and his people? Not only does the credentials of Christ give us confidence as Christians, but the credentials of Christ give us comfort. Because we know that what Christ has come to do is to make peace by his blood. The, <laughs> the Christmas uh, text is Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 12 through 14 says this. This will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I'm not sure if there's a better way to sum up what God was about when he created the world and when he claimed uh, when he came to reclaim the world in Christ Jesus. It was about his glory and our peace. Glory to God in the highest, peace toward those with whom he is pleased. 
Now, the old King James Version, if you're hearing that, the, you know, what, the old King James does say this, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. But virtually, if you have any sort of newer uh, translation, any modern translation, they would disagree. They, they don't think that that's an accurate translation of the text. The NIV says, on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And uh, the New American Standard says, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. And the ESV says, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay. The point is this, that even though this babe came to the earth, the offer of God's peace goes out to all, but only the chosen people of God, those who receive Christ and trust him as their savior and Messiah and Lord will experience the peace he brings. You see, when the babe came, it was not just an offer of peace. It was also a judgment. It's going to be a judgment to all those who do not believe. You see, for us as Christians, when Jesus saved you, there's lots of good news, okay? But one of the best news there is the war between you and God is over. Thank you. Like, is this on? It's over. The war is over. The the most basic need that we have is peace with God. It's foundational for us. And if we don't go there first, you'll... There's lots of things we could talk about the peace that Christ brings with ourselves, with other people around us in, in horrible circumstances and trials and tribulations. Yes, he does all those things. But the most significant peace he brings is peace with God. Romans 5 chapter 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, look, mark that down. Not all those that lived on the earth that the, the babe who brought peace lived on, It's those who have been justified by faith. That pivotal act of believing. For all those who have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified means that God declares you righteous. Not by your righteous, but by giving you the righteousness that Jesus Christ earned. That that he had. That he proved out by an entire life of sinlessness. Since we have been justified by faith, not by works, not by tradition, not by church membership, not by piety, not by, well, my parents were Christians, not by, I've always been a Christian. There's no such thing, right? Those of us in here who are Christians, there was a time when we were not. Christ made us alive in him. We're justified by faith. Faith alone, sola fide. And the result of that faith with God is or faith in God is peace with God. God's anger at us because of our sin is put away because of Christ. Our rebellion against him is overcome. Why? Because of Christ. And now God adopts us into his family. And from now on, all of our, his dealings with us, for us, are for our good. Which is crazy. 
and he will never, ever again be against us. And he will never leave us and he'll never forsake us. He is our father and he's our friend. We have peace. You don't have to be afraid anymore. So why was he born? Because there was absolutely no other way to bring peace between God and man. And so God became man. He alone could do it. He, the matchless, incomparable, unique, only one, was able to reconcile man to God. And he did it, as the scripture says, by the blood of his cross. So, let me say once again, peace for whom? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace toward those with whom he is well pleased. There's a somber note this Christmas. I would encourage you not to get so excited about all the Black Friday sales and all the other things that this time of year offers to you and your consumeristic culture that you live in. Because so many times we have this thing that we need to deal with that we just feed all these other things to us to try to keep that feelings abated. With what the angel said, there's a somber note because peace is only going out to some. Without faith, the scripture says, it is impossible to please God. And so Christmas brings peace to some, but Christmas brings just uh, a justice to others. It's a judgment. Jesus said, the judgment is that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Simeon in Luke chapter 2 says this, when he saw the Christ child, he says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. He will be a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. How many people look upon the babe in a manger and they're happy until they realize that this is the God man and then they say this is something we must oppose. I don't know if you're aware, but it's getting harder and harder. The opposition is going to continue to rise. The guys, the, the Advent season, the word Advent comes from the Greek word. It doesn't sound like Advent's a Latin word, okay? Um, there's a Greek word, parousia, that is, it means coming. And when we talk about the Advent, I always love to think back and try to put myself in the place of, you know, 3,000 years ago, where I've watched all generations of people die that I know and love, waiting for them to be able to see Christ is coming, the Messiah would arrive, and then realizing maybe that thousands of years after me, we're still waiting. But for us on this end, it's a little different because we know that the thing that he promised the 4,000 years of believers in the Old Testament came true. And then when that Christ came, he said, behold, I will come again. And so we, 
in Advent, not only are we comforted because of what Christ did at his first coming, I'm comforted greatly by what he's promised to do at the next one. And you know what? He's got the credentials to pull it off. Though all the world join together in opposition of our king, they will all fall before him. No matter what army Satan is able to bring together against the king of kings, they will all fall before him. None can withstand. Out of his mouth will come a two-edged sword. And all he has to do is simply say something and enemies will never think another rational thought again. It's incredible. It's incredible. If this is the Savior you want, I have good news for you. You remember back to that text I mentioned earlier, to Isaiah chapter 9. The scripture says, unto us a child is given. Unto us, who's us? Those who believe. There's no hope for those who don't believe. They don't get to be included in the us. There's no peace for those who do not place their faith in Christ. But for those of us who do, a child is given and the governments can all be placed upon his shoulders because he will rule them all. He is worthy of your faith today. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for your word. And Lord, we do know it is true. Lord, we recognize that it's true, not just for those of us in this room that believe, but it's just as true for those of us in this room who don't. And whether these people acknowledge it or not, Lord, it doesn't change the fact that reality is reality. And the reality is that you are the king of all, all the universe. And nothing is going to stop you. Nothing is going to be able to thwart your plan at all. Nothing is going to change the fact that the sacrifice that your son made upon the cross is sufficient. So those of us that believe, Lord, when we think our sin might have been more powerful than the sacrifice of the son, Lord, I pray that you give us the peace of knowing that we're not that powerful. Give us the peace of knowing that his sacrifice was sufficient. Help us, Father, in this time to believe, to have confidence in the one to whom we look. I'm thankful, God, that you saw fit, that where we couldn't, where we had made ourselves an enemy with no hope, nothing in or of ourselves could be made right before you. I'm so thankful, God, that you made a way, that you so loved the world that you sent your only begotten son to give his life on a cross to make atonement for our sin. Father, help us to believe. Help us to trust. Help us to have confidence. And God, help us to have comfort.
For this I ask in Christ's name. Amen.